Well, if you're a guest with us today, we're delighted that you're here with us. And if you're worshiping with us this morning online, we're delighted that you're worshiping with us too. And we are in a series simply called Game Changer, which is a look at the life of Jesus Christ, who was the game-changing impact on the lives of people who knew him. And we're looking at his life through their eyes. How many of you have, have received a save-the-date wedding card in the mail? Let me see your hands if, you, if you've ever received it. Okay, kind of a, kind of a new thing. We, we got one this week. We get a lot of them in the mail, uh, putting the date on the calendar uh, for, for the future. Now, we've gotten some really lovely ones in the mail. I'm sure you have, too. You can see some examples of some what I would call high-quality save-the-date cards. But there are also some really unique, bizarre, and just flat-out odd save-the-date cards as well. You know, I, I, I'll be honest with you, that one with the cow that says he bought the cow, I'm just not sure what that, what that one really is, is trying to say. I just know this, that, you know, it's probably not the kind of a save-the-date card I'd want to send out. As a matter of fact, years ago when I first started ministry, nobody sent out a save-the-date card. It would have been seen as wasteful expenditures. You're going to get an invitation that's good enough. An invitation will tell you the date and all the things you need to know just when you get your invitation, if you can say yes, say yes. If you can't, you can't. It's fair enough. No, save the date card. As a matter of fact, when Elsie and I got married, I mean, weddings and receptions have changed a lot. When we got married years ago, the, the, you could tell the difference between an expensive, upscale, high-ranking high reception as opposed to the average wedding reception. The upscale, fancy wedding reception had both mixed nuts and pastel mints. That's how you knew... <laughs> If, if it was a fancy reception or, or not. But one thing that brides and grooms and weddings and receptions have always had in common down through history is this simple uh, moment in common, and that is it is a game-changing moment for both the bride and the groom and their families. The Apostle John is the only gospel writer to include the story of the wedding feast at Cana of Galilee where Jesus performed his very first miracle. This moment is when Jesus saved the date for the couple who was getting married. And it is a game changer for us to examine this morning. Let's take a look at the text. Beginning in John chapter 2, verse 1, it says, On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Now, I don't want to make more of what's there. But every time, folks, I open the Scriptures and I start reading on the third day, my eyes pick up and my ears begin to listen. What, what is this trying to say? This, our God is a God of these third day experiences. We looked at that a couple weeks ago in the message, this, this third day moment. And I find this incredibly unique, that the first miracle of our Lord's earthly ministry and his last grand spectacular miracle of his resurrection of his earthly ministry all happened on the third day. I don't know if it's significant or not, but it sure makes me stop and wonder. Yes, there were some miracles that Jesus did in his post-resurrection appearances, but in his earthly ministry, they are bookended by two miracles, both on the third day. The text goes on. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. 
Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water so that they, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. Thus he revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. Now, folks, I want you to write up up top. This story, this passage is not about marriage. It's about who Jesus is and what he came to do. That's why we don't even know the name of the bride and groom. Usually in wedding stories, the bride and the groom are the central figures of the story. But the focus is on Jesus in this text, whose miracle that day set him apart for the first time as the Messiah, the promised one, the one that everybody was waiting for. And it also saved the date of this wedding. Because in this day and time, what happens here is, uh, is, is frightfully embarrassing to the couple. Now, to, to really understand what's happening here, we need to understand a little bit about Jewish culture and the weddings of the day in which Jesus lived and ministered. The first century Jewish culture, uh, weddings were planned years in advance because this is when parents were still arranging marriages for their sons and daughters. And part of the arrangement process was what is called the mohar. And that was the price paid by the groom's family to the bride's father for the loss of a daughter, a custom I deeply regret has passed into oblivion. <laughs> My Son-in-law is hoping it will be restored uh, in the near future as Eric is raising three daughters. A coin or something of value was given to the bride at the time of the contract. It was something that she could keep as a seal on the pledge or the promise. Now, if the bride, for some reason, did not want to marry the young man, she had that choice and she would refuse that. And it is out of that custom that we have sort of the wedding engagement ring uh, today. And so a uh, a prospective bride puts that ring on her finger. It is a seal of the promise that she and the groom have made to each other. Now, unlike marriages today, uh, a, a betrothal or an engagement period in the first century was legally binding. If a couple breaks their engagement today, there are broken hearts, but there's no broken legal requirements. There were then. This was legally binding. And a year of betrothal then was followed up by a year-long festival as the bride and groom came together to be married. And it didn't just involve family and friends of the bride and groom. This was a community affair. And, and you kind of got to understand that these were big deals in these small rural communities. Not much else of excitement happened. They worked hard and, 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 and they worked long in order to provide for their families. But when weddings came along, it was like holidays. It was a time to celebrate. It was a time to pull away from the rest of the world and really have a great time. Now, the groom made the first move. In his own time and accompanied by his friends, which today we would call the groomsmen, he made his way to the bride's house where the ceremony would begin. 
Nighttime was often preferred because it kind of heightened the element of surprise since the bride and her family didn't know when he was coming. And given the fact that it was considered a crass insult not to go to a wedding if you were invited to a wedding in a community, it gave people the day to work and then that night they could attend the wedding. And I don't know why, but weddings were preferred on Wednesdays in the first century, at least in the Jewish culture there. Since no one in the bride's household knew exactly what time the bridegroom and his entourage might arrive, the, the bride and her bridesmaids had to be ready all the time. They had to have their lamps ready at any moment when the groom came and when the best man would shout, here comes the groom, and they would all be ready. And, and knowing that gives some insight into the parable that Jesus told at the end of his ministry about the five wives, five wise and five foolish bridesmaids. As they proceeded through the streets, once they got to the house, he took the veiled bride and they made their way then to his house where the rest of the ceremony would take place. And as they walked through the crowded streets, there would be people that would be singing songs and there would be poetry that would be read and people would be standing on the roofs of their flat homes and they would be shouting encouragements and words of congratulation. It took a while to make that journey from the one to the other because it was so much celebration going on. What an exciting time. And for the next seven days, the bride and groom did no work. They wore their wedding clothes all through the week, and they were considered as king and queen over the festivities. They were even addressed as such. They would never have another period of time in their entire lives that would be equivalent to this. And for the most part, all the games and festivities, the bride and groom just watched because they were being held in their honor. It was a great time in any small Jewish community. And I can only assume that this wedding in Cana of Galilee was typical of all other weddings at that same time period. But what happened, what happened at this wedding reception was simply unthinkable from the standpoint of the host family perspective. They ran out of wine. Now, wine was a staple of Jewish culture in that day, a Jewish, at Jewish mealtime, at Jewish special celebration occasions like a wedding reception, wine was always served. However, it was served differently than what it might be served today. Today, uh, wine is just poured from the bottle. But in that day and time, you took two parts wine and you mixed it with three parts water and that's the way it was served. Now, that did a couple different things. First of all, the, the water diluted the intoxicating effects of the wine and the wine purified the water. You see, drunkenness in Jewish culture at that day and time was not very common because it was considered a huge social embarrassment, not to mention the fact that in Scripture, drunkenness is always considered to be a sin. And so they avoided that, and, and, and the two parts wine and three parts water helped to accomplish that. But to run out of wine at such a festive occasion was just it was beyond thinkable. Now, a lot of uh, scholars think that this wedding feast here that Jesus was attending might have been a part of his extended family because Mary seems to be playing some kind of a, of a lead role here at the reception. It's Mary that said, hey, son, they have run out of wine. Why, why is she concerned unless she's a part of the planning and carrying out of this? Uh, some early Christian writings, not, not Scripture, but early Christian writings indicate that this wedding may be that of John the Apostle. Uh, it seems that John's mother, Salome, and Mary, 
the mother of Jesus, were sisters, which would have made Jesus and John the Apostle first cousins. Well, that would make good sense. That would explain why Mary, as an aunt, is helping coordinate what's going on at the wedding. It would also explain why John is the only gospel writer to include this story. It was his wedding. This was part of his story, a part of his heritage. Now, when Jesus responds to his mom, it, it seems a little, well, disrespectful, doesn't it? Woman, what am I got to do with you? You know, that's the way we often read it in, in our English. You know, like, whoa. The word that Jesus uses here is a term of endearment. It's not the word mother, but we would better translate it as dear lady or dearest uh, ma'am. Um, it's the same word that Jesus uses to address his mother from the cross. When he's hanging on the cross and he wants John to take care of his mother, this is the same word. This is not disrespectful. This is very loving. It is very gracious. It is very kind. And he says, you know, my time's not, you know, this is not my time. There were certain times and aspects in Jesus' life where they were monumental moments as he prepared for what was going to happen. Mary, nevertheless, says to the, to the servers, she says, you just do whatever he tells you to do. <laughs> Sounds kind of like a mother, doesn't it? You know, just, just do what he tells you to do. Right? So anyway, they filled these stone vats. Now, these, these stone vats or uh, pottery vats would have held 20 to 30 gallons. Now, you do the math quick. Six of these at 20 gallons apiece, that is, that's a lot of gallons of wine. This must have been a huge crowd that was gathered. Again, we're talking about a community uh, effort that was going on. And they fill them to the brim. That's important to know. All of this is to substantiate the miracle. The water is filled to the very top. There's no room left in it. These were jars that were not used for wine. These were jars that were used only for water to hold the water for ceremonial cleansing. John is writing in such a way as to remove any skeptical possibility. Well, they only filled them up halfway and somebody dumped wine in it, you know, all that kind of... No, no. They were filled to the brim, and it was only water that was contained in these, and when they dipped it out for the first time, the master of the wedding tasted the best wine possible. By the way, this is not a public miracle. The master of the ceremonies did not know where the wine had come from. I don't think the bride and groom knew where the wine had come from. It's only the servers who knew the wine was gone. It was Mary and Jesus and his disciples. And the Bible says that Jesus did this for his disciples so that they could know and believe. And it says they put their faith in him. The miracle really was a game-changing moment. And it was the beginning of a game-changing three-year journey that these men would spend with the Savior of the world. Now you say, okay, what, what do we learn from a story like that? Well, there's, there's probably a lot of things to learn, but l- let me just give you a couple things this morning. Here's the first thing. Do what you can to encourage others. Do what you can to encourage others. Beth wanted to encourage her husband's diet. She wanted to encourage him to lose some weight. And so when her son brought home a box of leftover donuts from one of the sports events at school, she didn't want to throw them out, but she didn't want her husband to find them. So she figured out a way that she could encourage him to stick to the diet and save the donuts. She hid them in the vegetable drawer of the refrigerator because she knew her husband would never look there for anything to eat. Now, I guess that's encouragement of a sorts, but that's not the encouragement that we see here in this story. Notice where the story happens. It was in a nondescript rural village, little town, 
called Cana, which was not, by the way, very far from Nazareth, which was where Jesus lived. You know, sometimes you think of somebody as notable and famous as Jesus was that he would have stuck only to the big places. I'm just going to spend my time in Jerusalem and the big cities where I can draw the big crowds. That's not Jesus. Jesus was as as much at home in Cana as he was Jerusalem. Jesus was as much at home in a one-on-one conversation with somebody that nobody else would take notice of as he was when he was speaking with the high ups and the intelligentsia of the day. Jesus was the same wherever he went, and he always took the opportunity to encourage And I want you to see here that what we have is his presence was a great encouragement at the wedding. Notice why this miracle happened. It didn't give a blind man his sight. It didn't calm raging seas to protect a boat on the water. He didn't raise to life a dead son and give it back to his widowed mother so her grief could be assuaged. The only problem here is that they run out of wine. This wasn't going to change anybody's life. It wasn't going to make any difference in history. All it was was Jesus was concerned about the people that he cared about. He saved them from a humiliating moment. Now, I, I don't know how you look at that, but I absolutely love the Savior for that very reason. He cared enough to make a little difference in the little things. I I guess I take heart from that knowing that in the little things of my life, God is very much aware. I I think we would do well to learn the same lesson of encouragement. It's the little things. It's it's noticing. It's helping spare somebody a moment of embarrassment or shame or humility. The little things make such a big difference. Now, you may feel like you don't have anything to offer the church. I hear people say, well, I can't sing. Well, that's okay. Or I, I don't, I'm not comfortable teaching in front of a group. Uh, that's okay. Maybe you don't want to leave the country for a mission trip. Or maybe you get queasy at the smells of hospitals or convalescent homes. Or maybe you're afraid that you can't relate to a college student. Or you can't relate to a senior citizen. Or maybe kids make you nervous. Or maybe you're a lousy cook and you think, I have nothing to offer at church. Oh, but that's not true. Everybody has weak areas when it comes to skills and abilities. And everybody has those things that are way out of your comfort zone. But I want you to know that everybody in this room and everybody watching online can do this. You can all encourage. You can all help lift the spirits of people. This doesn't take a lot to be able to do. Have you got a brain? You can encourage. You got a mouth that works? you can encourage. Can you halfway smile? You can encourage. Do you know the alphabet? Can you put three words together and form a sentence? You can encourage. It doesn't take a diploma. It doesn't take a dissertation. It doesn't take an order from your boss. All you have to do is be observant to the issues and concerns and the needs of others. And if you cannot do anything else, you can come alongside and encourage somebody with a pat on the back, with a smile on your face, with a kind word, with a kind gesture, with a kind note. Everybody here can be an encourager. I don't know if you recognize the name of William Wilberforce from history, but he was a terrific uh, Christian who spent the bulk of his life pushing for Britain's parliament to abolish slavery. Early on in his efforts, he got so discouraged 
that, that he almost quit. He was ready to throw in the towel and say, you know, this job is for somebody else. It's not for me. Now, John Wesley, the great preacher and evangelist of that day and time, who was an older mentor friend to William Wilberforce, heard about his discouragement. John Wesley was on his deathbed. And John Wesley asked for pen and paper and wrote William Wilberforce a note. He was so weak that his hand was shaky. The letters were not very clear, but they were legible. And this is part of the note that he wrote. He said, but if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them stronger than God? Oh, be not weary of well-doing. Go on in the name of God and in the power of his might until even American slavery shall have vanished away before it. And he signed it, John Wesley. John Wesley died six days after writing that note. But when William Wilberforce got it, it so changed his attitude, he spent the next 45 years fighting slavery in England. In the year 1833, just three days before William Wilberforce died, British Parliament abolished slavery. Thirty years later, America abolished slavery. One has to wonder, how much longer would it have taken for our world to realize that failure had it not been for one encouraging note. You have no idea what an encouraging word, what an encouraging pat on the back, what an encouraging note from you may do to help somebody else through the crisis moments of their life. That is what Jesus was doing. Here he was at a wedding, and they had an embarrassing moment, and Jesus said, let me encourage you. I'll take away the humiliation." And as a matter of fact, the master ceremony said, wow, you have saved the best for last. When Jesus does something, he always does it best. Here's the other thing I want you to see out of this story, and that is learn how to celebrate the special moments of life. I so appreciate the fact that Jesus took time to attend a wedding. After all, he was here to save the world. I can't imagine the stress and the burden that Jesus carried, but it didn't stop him from being able to celebrate. He knew better than anybody else the sorrow brought on by death and sin. But I don't know of anybody that knew the joy of celebrating better than Jesus. Sometimes we forget how to enjoy the life that God gave us. Do, do you realize that God commanded his people to celebrate? Do, do you realize our God is a God of celebrations? God required that every Jewish person be a part of, attend three big celebrations of the year. There were more than this, but they were required to celebrate Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles and the Day of Atonement. And yes, they were religious days, and there was some spiritual focus to it, but there was also a celebration to it. There were family and friends to get together, and they ate together, and they celebrated together. Our God is a God who understands the importance and the need of celebrations. Why do you think that the little children flocked around Jesus all the time? Because he was so dour and serious? No, it's because he knew the joy of children, the joy of life. I believe, this, I can't prove it from scriptures, but I believe that Jesus had the most infectious laughter of anybody. And that when he laughed, people just were drawn to him. We know he used humor in his sermons. We have those recorded for us. 
Jesus liked using humor in his messages. I think Jesus enjoyed a good joke. I think when he laughed, everybody laughed because there was something about his way of celebrating joy that just made everybody feel great. Now, you can do that too. When you celebrate, you can make everybody feel better around you, and you can help them see the joy of, of Christ, because some people have the idea that if you're going to be a Christian, if you're going to live this life following Christ, everything has to be so serious, nothing could be farther from the truth. I am convinced that following Jesus lifts the burden from our shoulders and gives us the capacity to celebrate in ways that we could not otherwise. If you pick up today's paper or you listen to the, to the world news today, you're going to be depressed if you focus on that all the time. Find the joy in the midst of the pain. Rejoice in the good things. Let go of the disappointing things. Don't be too serious. If people are surprised to hear you laugh, then you're too serious. And I'm telling you, nobody wants to be around a grumpy, dour, sour Christian who's too uptight and serious about everything. Who wants to be around a savior of a person like that? If Jesus could celebrate, then we can celebrate too. Be an encourager. Learn how to celebrate and lift people's spirits and set them on their way because if you can spare somebody just a moment of humiliation, if you can change somebody's outlook for a day, if a note or a word or a thought can make all that difference, then you have lived out the spirit of Christ. I, I, I read a story of, of Ken Wilson. He writes of taking his family to Disney World in Orlando a few years ago, and uh, he said on one of the days when they were in the Magic Kingdom, he parked himself on a bench at Cinderella's Castle just to kind of rest and, and uh, get out of the, uh, of the sunshine, and uh, he said he hadn't been there very long when he said there was just a mob of kids came through Cinderella's Castle, and he couldn't figure out what in the world and where were these kids going and what was going on, then he looked up and there she was. Cinderella herself. And he said that the, the stereotyping was just perfect. She was beautiful and gracious, and she moved, and the kids just thronged around her and flocked around her because all the kids wanted to see Cinderella. And, and then Ken said, he said, I don't know why, he said, but I looked to the other side of the castle that now was empty because everybody had gone to where Cinderella was. He said, it was empty except for two boys that sat on a a bench on the other side of the castle. And he said one appeared to be maybe 12 or 13, and he said it was impossible to know the age of the other boy because of his twisted, misshapen body. He said, but the boys were holding hands. And then he said he looked around, and just about the time he looked around, Cinderella looked to the other side of the castle, and she saw these two boys on the bench, and she gently but firmly pushed her way through the crowd and made her way to that bench. The one little boy whose body was so twisted and misshapen could not even look up into Cinderella's face, but she got down on her hands and knees so she could look into his. And then without saying a word, she simply leaned forward and planted a kiss on his cheek. It was a game-changing moment for that little boy. If he lives to be a hundred, he'll never forget that kiss from Cinderella. Such grace and selflessness on the part of Cinderella transformed the heart of a broken little guy who, though likely shunned by the rest of the world, became 
the object of the focus of the princess. I have no idea who that Cinderella was, but if somebody told me she was a follower of Jesus, I certainly wouldn't be surprised because what she did was very much in the spirit of the encouraging Jesus. You see, folks, broken and shunned by this world, we have become his focus. He took away all of our humiliation and embarrassment. And by his grace, by his mercy, he left in us a reason to celebrate.